I wonder for you, when you open up that little page on your LMS, when your transcript comes through, you would have done it just a little while ago, semester two, and you're checking out your marks. What are you feeling at that moment? I remember report time for me at school was always that kind of weird mixture of pretty strong anxiety, but also, you know, a bit of excitement at the same time. You know, how did I go? Did I go okay? But then there's that kind of fear of failure mixed in there at the same time. Uh, I, I kind of, I asked my mum actually this week, I said, mum, how did I go on reports at school? I couldn't remember. Uh, mum said, Steve used to get a lot of teacher comments. I don't know if you know teacher comments. Uh, mum gave me a couple. Uh, I think these were from year seven, eight, and nine. She, she dug some reports up for me. Uh, here's a couple. Um, some of them are encouraging, but some kind of sneak in a bit of a rebuke. You know, that's what teacher comments do well. They encourage you, compliment, and then smash you in the guts at the same time. Here's a couple. Steve contributes well to class discussion but would benefit from learning self-control skills. <laughs> uh, Steve is showing great enthusiasm but needs to be encouraged to listen to instructions. You know, they're, kind of, they're teacher comments, aren't they? You know, you get that kind of compliment, it's encouraging, but then, bang, you know, a little rebuke there. Hits you in the guts. Tonight's passage, Revelation 2 and 3, it seems to me it's a little bit like that. Um, it's a little bit like it's Jesus' assessment of the churches. And, and there's some wonderfully encouraging moments. And then there's some kind of ooh, sharp points, you know, that really make us sit back and go, wow, I'm glad I'm not that church, you know. Um, there's, some, there's some encouraging points and there's some really strong abuse. Uh, some actually, some of the churches you might have noticed, are they get both? Are they get both encouragement and rebuke? Others only get rebuke and others only get encouragement. Uh, you might have remembered last week, if you were here, uh, we kicked off this series in the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at chapter 1. And, and last week you would remember that we saw that picture of Jesus. We saw that vision of him, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, where he is right now. Uh, the, the door's kind of being pulled back so we can see the reality of Jesus with his ascendedness, he's ascended at the right hand of God. And what we saw there were some pretty big descriptions that described him. I guess that's what descriptions do, right? They describe people. (laughs) Some of the things we saw there uh, was that Jesus had eyes like fire. Uh, why, Why was that? Well, it was because he sees everything. He's the judge. Uh, He had a sword, a double-edged sword, coming out of his mouth. I mean, that's a pretty freaky image just to try and imagine that. But why does he have that? Well, it indicates that his word that he speaks, well, it cuts to the heart, as it both encourages us and rebukes us at the same time. Uh, We also saw that he holds seven lampstands in his hand. Uh, The seven lampstands we saw were the seven churches, And so what we see is that Jesus sees everything, he speaks his powerful word, and he does that to the churches that he holds in his hand under his power. That was chapter 1, that was last week. And now tonight, as we keep reading through the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, what we see is that that same Jesus, that risen and ascended Jesus, he speaks this powerful voice to these seven churches. Uh, He gives his assessment of them. He speaks and says, what he thinks, how they're going, how they're doing. 
And now you might be thinking, oh, well, that's nice, Steve, you know. Jesus spoke to those churches back there in the first century, are those ones whose names we can hardly even pronounce, whose, you know, the places we don't even really know where they are. Uh, what's the point? Why are we, why are we looking at that tonight? Uh, why are we going to spend 25 or 30 minutes just thinking about that? Um, why are they relevant? Are they really relevant to us today, these words that Jesus spoke to those churches back then? Well, I want to put it to you tonight that, that though they are written to real churches in the first century, and though they do actually speak to real specific issues that were going on back then, I want to put it to you that they still proclaim a very real message to us today, a very important message for us to hear. I think there's two reasons that we can see in the text that show us that these are not just written for those churches back then, but they're written for all churches throughout history. They're written for all of Jesus' people who gather together and do church. Uh, the first reason uh, is is firstly because, well, they're a part of the whole book of Revelation. And remember last week we saw there that the whole book was to be read in all the churches. It was a letter to be circulated. And so these letters, the seven letters, they're in the whole book. So all the churches would have heard them. But secondly, you might have seen that little repeated phrase there at the end of each of the seven churches. There's a little repeated phrase and it says this. Jesus says, whoever has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's plural, churches, it's not just to this particular church. And he says that at the end of every letter to the churches. Uh, churches is plural on every occasion. Uh, each letter you see that we're going to see tonight that we've heard read to us, each letter is a word from Jesus to the churches for all time. So what that means for us is that these seven letters actually become a little bit like an assessment guide. Uh, we can we can look back at them and see how they did, and we can kind of look at ourselves and compare ourselves to them and, and think about how, how we're going. We can look at what Jesus wants from church, what he doesn't want in his people, and see how we're going. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, you'll see in your outline there you've got four questions, a little four-question quiz tonight, a little pop quiz I know it's only week two, but, you know, you've got to spring quizzes on us every now and then. And I hope that as we work through these four questions, these four challenges and encouragements, that we'll actually be both that. Uh, We'll be encouraged and we'll be challenged. Uh, We'll see that there's things that we're doing well and we'll see that there's things that we could probably do better. Uh, You might be thinking, well... Well, why only four? Why not seven? You know, there's seven churches. Why are we doing four? Uh, well, it's not just a time thing. It's not that, you know, you can only have four points in a sermon or anything like that. Now, it seems to me that as I've looked at this, uh, these seven churches and the structure there, it seems to me that there's a pretty clear structure that revolves around repeated themes and ideas. Uh, theologians and commentators, they use a fancy word for this type of structure. It's called a chiasm. Uh, chiasm uh, comes from, there's a Greek letter called chi, and it looks a little bit like an X. Uh, and a chiasm, in case you haven't heard, uh, it looks a little bit like this. Uh, chiasms are used often in the Bible. Uh, they're a literary device, a writing structure. And they use kind of a repetition pattern in order to bring both clarification and emphasis. Uh, so individual points kind of build up to a main point. 
and then they kind of back off, and there's a real parallel nature to it. Um, so I've given you a little example from, from a simple chiasm. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, a verse that most of you would know. Uh, this takes on the same structure. And you can see there, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. See how the, the outside ones are kind of the same, and then the, the middle ones kind of are the same, and then right in the middle is the big point that you want us to take away? The Bible uses a lot of these. Now, some people see chiasms everywhere. Other people don't believe in them. I think they're there, and I think they're helpful. And it seems to me that, you know, a good way to remember it is a bit like a sandwich. You know, you've got your piece of bread on either side, then you might have a double lettuce and then tomato, and then right in the middle you've got your meat. The bit, although no one really puts lettuce on both ends, do they? <laughs> it doesn't quite work, the whole sandwich thing. But you can see how they're similar. And when you look at um, these seven churches, they seem to take on that sort of a pattern. They seem to be like a, a chiasm on steroids in some ways. Um, here's a bit of a simple summary picture uh, that I've put together. And you can see when you look at the first church and the last church, they both lack something. first one lacks love, last one lacks zeal, and they kind of interpret each other. Uh, in the middle, uh, you've got Smyrna and Philadelphia, neither of which have a rebuke, they only get encouragement, and both of them, their thing is that they're undergoing persecution. Uh, then, you, then you see Pergamon and Sardis, they're being led astray, they're compromising on different issues. And then right in the middle, we see Thyatira, which is tolerating sinfulness. So it seems to me that this structure is very deliberate. Uh, it spells out the way churches and Christian groups uh, can kind of go off the rails. Uh, see, if you, love, if you lose your love of Jesus and then you're heavily persecuted, uh, then you may very well compromise on the truth and then you'll give in to sin. Uh, but on the other hand, they actually help us not fall into sin. Uh, see, if you know that you're not going to compromise on morality, if you work out how to deal with persecution, uh, then maybe you won't have a lack of zeal, but your zeal will return. It seems to me that's the way these seven churches work. That's the structure. So what we're going to do tonight uh, is we're going to look at the first church, and as we do, we'll jump down to the seventh church and see how that helps us. And then we'll do two and six and Three and five, and then we'll end up at number four. That's why I've got four points. That was a long explanation, wasn't it? Sorry about that. But I like chiasms. They're kind of fun. You can take that as an English lit, or maybe ancient Greek lit class or something like that. So here we go. Question number one. What's the first question that I think we're asked of in the text tonight? Well, the first question I want to ask, it's there on your outlines, is are we on fire for Jesus? How's our love going? How's our zeal going for Jesus? As a CU group, as the Christian Union here on campus, uh, how are we going? Do we love Jesus? Are we passionate about him? To proclaim him to our friends on campus, we're talking about week four, rethink week coming up. How are we feeling about that? Are we daunted? Do we not want to do it? How's our zeal? Are we on fire for Jesus? And when I ask that question, when I say, are we on fire for Jesus? There's a couple of things I don't mean by that question. I don't mean, are you one of those people that is excited all the time? And you've kind of got that charismatic personality where even if you've got really downs in life, it's okay because you've just got that personality. 
That's not what I think it means to be on fire for Jesus. No, we need to be real and we need to deal with the ups and downs in life. Uh, we don't have to change our personality type. Uh, the other thing I don't think it means is, I certainly don't think it means that we have to change our T-shirts and we say, yeah, we're all on fire for Jesus. I quite like the T-shirts we've got at the moment. No, what I think it means for us to be on fire for Jesus is to ask the question, is our faith, is our belief in Jesus more than just head knowledge? Is it more than just having knowledge in our head? Has the good news of Jesus impacted our hearts so that we really do love Jesus, so that we really want others to know the goodness that we have when we have him? I think that's what it means to be on fire for Jesus. It seems to me that when you look at this church in Ephesus and when you look at the church in Laodicea, what they had was head knowledge. Uh, And Jesus commends them for that. It's good to have knowledge. You need to have knowledge. Now see there in verse 2 of chapter 2, Jesus says to the Ephesians, he says, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found themselves to be false. See, he commends them for many good things. Uh, He says, he says there to the to the Laodiceans, uh, there's good encouragement there. Uh, this church in Ephesus, they've got some good things going on. Uh, they've got the truth. They seem to be doing good works. But have a look there, verse 4. What does Jesus say? He says, you have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Let me ask you, can you remember in your life are the first time that you really understood what Jesus did for you on that cross. Do you remember that moment? When you really understood what it meant that Jesus would do that trade for you, his life for yours. How did you feel in that moment? It was was good, wasn't it? To understand the gospel, the good news of what Jesus done for us on the cross, there and then, it, it made us... We actually loved Jesus there, didn't we? That's what Paul's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about that first love, when we first understood what Jesus has done for us. When we first went, yes, I want that. I want to live for you, Jesus. If, if you were like me when you first got it, you probably wanted to tell other people about Jesus. Because you just thought the news was so good. Which it is. It's momentous news. Uh, that our sins are forgiven, that we can have life with God for eternity. That first love, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, A sense of just being captured by the wonder of the cross, that God would do that for us in his son Jesus. seems to me here that what we see is that the Ephesians have lost it. They've lost that first love. Uh, That initial enthusiasm for Jesus, well, it's been replaced by just a hard-hearted defensiveness of the truth. Uh, It's all come to head knowledge for them. And you see there in verse 5, Jesus uses the image of a lampstand. He says, if they don't start burning with love, then Jesus is going to come and snuff them out. He's going to put out their fire. 
He will remove the lampstand from its place. The Ephesians, you see, they're like the later sands, uh, the seventh church. The later sands, they're probably the most popular of the seven churches. They're neither hot nor cold. Uh, they're not hot and fiery. They're not cold and refreshing. No, they're just lukewarm. They're unpalatable. Um, lukewarm's the worst, isn't it? Uh, you know, you, it's a cold day and you, you go for a piping hot cup of coffee and you realise you've left it on the bench for 20 minutes because you got distracted and you go, oh yeah, my coffee! Oh, chuck it out. Lukewarm's the worst. Or on a hot day, you know. You, um, you're working hard in the garden, if that's you, or building a fence, something, doing something, you're sweating, you're playing sport, you go for a can of Coke, and it's lukewarm. Oh, chuck it away, spit it out. Lukewarm is the worst. You just about vomit. Warm Coke. No one likes that. Jesus says in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he says to the later scenes, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Strong words from Jesus. But I wonder if you've seen this. Have you ever been to a church uh, that you know you might hear its sermon and they talk about loving others? Loving others like Jesus loves people and then no one talks to you at morning tea? It's not hot nor cold, is it? It's lukewarm. Truth without love. It's like faith without works. It's dead. It's not good. It's not how we meant to live. The question I want to ask us is, how are we going with this? How's the CU? You know, are we all about doctrine? Or do we have love at the same time? Are we just a group that pats ourselves on the back and says, oh yeah, we know the truth about God and everyone else can just forget about it? Or do we actually have love for the lost and we want to see them saved? Are we, are we a group that's keen to speak the good news of Jesus to our friends? Jesus says, Jesus says to us, if our love and our zeal are waning, he says there in chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I approve and discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's a little bit cryptic what Jesus says there. But I think what Jesus is saying is that he says, if you want to get that love back, if you want to get that zeal for Jesus, then what you need to do is you need to see again what you have when you have Jesus. Uh, Three things he talks about there. He says, buy gold from me. Uh, He says, find your treasure in me. Uh, Why does he say that? Well, because where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Uh, He says, secondly, be clothed in what he gives you. Be clothed in that perfect spotless robe of sins forgiven. And finally, he says, go to him and get salve for your eyes so that you can see that. So that you know that, not just in your head, but in your heart. Because when you see clearly, what Jesus does for us, what he gives us, 
when he dies on that cross for us, when you see that clearly, you will love him. You will have a love for him. You will burn with zeal when you see it clearly. So let me encourage you to do that if you've lost your love or your zeal. That's question one. Are we on fire for Jesus? How are we going with that? Our second question, uh, and these ones will get a little bit shorter. Second question is, how are we going with persecution? As we move on to the second church, we see the church in Smyrna and then jump down to the church in Philadelphia. We see that both these churches are experiencing intense persecution. Uh, Jesus commends both of these churches and he gets pretty real with the Smyrnans. Uh, he says some, some pretty tr- big truths. You know, some people will say, you become a Christian and life's just going to be rosy. So well, that's rubbish. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, chapter 2 verse 10, he says, yeah, some of you will be thrown in prison. Some of you will be killed. Uh, but what is the encouragement that he says? Well, end of verse 10, he says, even if you die for me, I will give you the crown of life. Even if you die, you will receive the crown of life. In verse 11, to the one who conquers, that is to the one who sticks with Jesus in this life, they will not be hurt by the second death. They will not be hurt by the second death. In fact, they will receive the hope of heaven. Uh, Here in the CU, uh, here at uni on campus in Bendigo, we don't really experience physical persecution. Uh, No one's raided our homes or beat us up or anything like that. Uh, The most I think we've ever had is people pulled our posters down, which is pretty light really, isn't it? But I think what we do experience is we do have some types of persecution, and that's more relational persecution. Uh, People slander us. Uh, People will maybe even defriend us, not talk to us, make fun of us. And I want to say we don't want to make light of that. That can be hard. Uh, It can be hard to lose relationships. I remember when I was at uni, uh, I had a friend, I'd got to know him in first year, Uh, we're in the same course, and he found out, I actually invited him to to an event like we're going to have, he found out I was a Christian, and he never talked to me again. I just thought, "That's, that's crazy. True story. Um, he just had something against Christians, and I thought we were good friends. And that was hard. Uh, that was hard for me to take. But what does Jesus say here? What's the encouragement if we're struggling with this type of persecution? How do we keep going? Well, Jesus says the way to endure persecution, whether it's relational persecution or whether it's physical persecution, it's the same answer. He says you have to have the long-term view. You have to have heaven in your sights. You have to see where you're going. Now, one of the things um, my daughter Josie does at the moment, which I laugh at, and I know I shouldn't, um, because you know sometimes when you're a dad, um, you can laugh at kids, and you know you shouldn't. One of the things that Josie does at the moment is she just gets really absorbed in the things around her. Or um, So the other day she was telling me this, I don't know, she was on her way down to the bedroom and she's just telling me all this stuff and walking away at the same time and she's got her head turned like this and she's telling me, I'm going to go get this toy from my bed, I'm going to bring it back to the kitchen and then all of a sudden, bang, she's cracked into the wall. Like she's missed the whole doorway. 
She forgot to look up and live, you know, like... And I know I shouldn't laugh, but it was kind of funny at the same time. Jesus says, don't do life like that. Jesus says, the way not to veer off track, the way not to crash into the wall is actually to look up and have a long-term view. He says, look up beyond kind of life and its comforts and the toys and its friendships. And he says, see that heaven is coming and keep your eye on that. Have a look at the long-term view. See where you're going for eternity. Jesus says here, even if you die, he will give you life. Uh, You won't be hurt by the second death if you stick with Jesus. When you jump down uh, to the letter to Philadelphia, uh, Jesus says there in chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now, the open door there, you see, that we, that we don't want to miss, is heaven. Jesus has opened that door for us. And he says, if you're mine, you can walk into it. So he says, endure. Endure patiently. Don't deny my name. No, walk through death to glory. That's what Jesus says here. So let me ask you, is is that type of persecution making you think of giving up? Are you finding that really hard? Are you worried about speaking up about your faith? Are you keeping silent? Well, Jesus says, look up and live. In chapter chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Jesus' return is just around the corner. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Question three. Thirdly, our third question has to do with compromise. Uh, We saw earlier how head knowledge alone was not good. Uh, It needs to, to be sinking in and bringing out works of love for us. Head knowledge alone is not good. But what we see here in this third section is that that doesn't mean that knowledge is bad. No, knowledge is actually very good. Uh, The truth is what unites us. Uh, The truth is what binds us together as Christians. It's vital that we know the truths of the Bible. It's vital that we learn them and that we stick to them. Because the truth, you see, it actually guards us against immorality. Uh, What we see with the church in Pergamon, when we read their letter, is that they were tolerating false doctrine. Uh, Listed there in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2 is that they were following the teachings teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, Now, we don't know exactly what these teachings were, uh, but what we do see is that where they led the Christians, they led them into immorality. In verse 14, you can see it there, these teachings involved worshipping of idols and sexual immorality. When we jump down to the church in Sardis, uh, what we see there is a pretty heavy rebuke. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Jesus says they have a reputation for being alive. Uh, that is, they, they, people look at them, they look at them as a church, as a group of Christians, and they look like they're going pretty well. But in reality, Jesus says in the end, verse 1 there, they are dead. There is no life in them. And do you know why that is? Well, it's because 
without the true word of God, there is no life. Jesus says in John 6 and verse 63, he says the words that he speaks are spirit and life. So if the word of God doesn't have that central place in our meetings and our gatherings, if we're just watering it down, if we're just saying oh, that what the Bible says, it doesn't really matter, we can skirt around that, try to make it more palatable for other people, if we just maybe slip into whatever our culture is saying at the moment, yeah, you know, popular one at the moment, yeah, no, just have sex with whoever, that doesn't matter, right? If we give up on those truths that the Bible teaches us, then we may as well not even exist, might we? What's the point of getting together if we're not actually speaking God's word to one another? If we're not seeing how he wants us to live in the world, if we're not seeing how his word points us to Jesus and the forgiveness that he gives us. If we don't have the word of God as central, then all we'll do is pat people on the back as they continue to sin and ignore God. Now what does Jesus say here? Well, In verse 3 of chapter 3 he says, Remember then what you received and what you heard. Keep it and repent. Compromising the truth, it simply leads to compromising on morality. Uh, Jesus says that we need to receive his word, we need to hear his word, and we need to obey his word. And that's why, that's why we do what we're doing right now. Uh, we're looking at his word together, trying to understand it together. Uh, that's why we have Bible study groups, and, and we meet one-to-one to read the Bible together. That's why whenever we get together, we want the Word of God to be open so we hear the truths of God spoken to us through His Word. If we're not doing that, then life will not be in us. So let's keep doing that. Let's commit to meeting together in our Bible study groups. We had a great meeting the other, the other day. Fourteen blokes turned up for bacon and egg and Bibles. Uh, that was pretty good. Um, I just pray that we will have fourteen every week, that we won't just meet once and say, yeah, that was good, and pat ourselves on the back, but that would grow and more of us would be hearing the word of God and having his life spoken into us. Finally, fourthly, how are we going with sin? Are we falling into sin? I think as we get to this part of our structure, uh, this is probably the biggest danger that any church or Christian group can face, that we would fall into sin. I did a, um, a risk management course as part of my employment earlier in the year. Uh, we talked about Blake's camp and that came up and we had a few risk management issues going on there. But you know the risk management issue that we identified as number one? For us, running Christian groups like this on campuses right around Australia, it was the godliness of our leaders. That's our number one risk, that our leaders would be falling into sin. If you've ever been in a church where a prominent leader has stuffed up in some way, you would know that that just completely depletes the whole group. It ruins churches. My prayer is that we would not be people who look good on the outside, but yet sin in secret. On the outside, when you look at the church in Thyatira, 
they looked good. In verse 19 of chapter 2, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, this assessment, it starts so incredibly positive, doesn't it? You know, the faith and service and endurance and love and works and they're better now than they were at the start. On the outside, they look great. But have a look there in verse 20. Jesus says this, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel here is symbolic of sin. Uh, it's not that there was just a lady called Jezebel and she was a bit of an annoying person, so you know, you shouldn't let her in. No, Jezebel here is symbolic of evil. Uh, Jezebel, you might remember, uh, was the evil queen of King Ahab back in the Old Testament. <coughs> She stands here as a symbol of idolatry and sexual immorality. By her teaching, uh, we see here, it leads people, it leads Jesus' servants into sexual immorality and idol worship. And you know, Jesus sees this. Did you notice how Jesus was introduced to this church? Back in verse 18, it said there, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire. Everyone else might look at the church and think they're amazing, but Jesus looks and he sees everything. He sees all. Now, I don't want to be negative. I think we're an amazing group. I really do. I love our group. I think we do many things really well. Uh, Some of the things we've been looking at tonight... I've been so encouraged by so many of you who I've got to know. I know that you have a deep love for Jesus. You do love him. It's not just head knowledge for you. That's wonderful. It brings me great joy to know that for many of you, your zeal is going really well. You're praying for your non-Christian friends. Some people have actually said, I'm looking forward to Rethink Week so I can invite my friends to those talks. That's fantastic. I'm really proud of lots of you who have been honest with me about the sin in your lives and you've been really working hard on obedience. That's wonderful. And I just pray that in all these things that we see on the outside, that we don't like Thyatira on the inside. I pray that we won't be a group that looks good on the outside but yet is tolerating sin and maybe in particular sexual sin. Jesus has very strong words against Jezebel. In verse 22 he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. But I will strike her children dead. Strong words, aren't they? Do you remember when Jesus was on earth, when he was walking around, AD 30, around that stage? who he spoke his strongest words to. It's the Pharisees, wasn't it? It was the religious hypocrites. The people who looked good on the outside, but their hearts were far from him. Jesus hates that. He hates religious hypocrisy. And right here at the very centre of our passage, we have verse 23 and verse 24. It seems to me that this is the very centre of of our structure, 
That's the only verse that's addressed to all the churches. And it says there, it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to the teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Friends, what we see here in these words is that Jesus sees all. He knows our minds, he knows our hearts. So don't think you can hide sin from him. No, repent. Come to him if that's you, and he will forgive you. That's the promise. He says there in verse 24, he says, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have. Do you know why Jesus says that? Do you know why he says, I do not lay on you any burden? It's because he takes our burden away, doesn't he? (coughs) Uh, The burden of sin that we have, it falls on him. It fell on him when he died on that cross. He bears our burdens. He takes our sin, so we don't have to. We just simply hold fast (coughs) to him, to cling to him. To hold fast to what we have, we're to take hold of Jesus and what he gives us at the cross. We're to glory in of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, of death defeated and life without end. These wonderful things. See, when we take hold of that, when we give him our burdens, when we hold fast to him, you know what it does? You know what it does when we see Jesus above everything else? Well, it means that we'll actually start sticking with him through thick and thin. When we see what he gives us on the cross, it means that we'll love him again and our zeal will grow for him. It means that we'll long to hear his word because it gives us life, it refreshes us. As we hear that we are cleansed by his blood for us. See, when we hold fast to the cross, when we hold fast to what Jesus gives us, then and only then we become the type of church that he wants us to be. So I pray that's what we'll be doing. That we would come to him. That we would constantly be living that life of repentance and believing the gospel. That we would put our burdens on him, let him take them away. And that we would glory in sins forgiven in the hope of heaven, so that we would share that with our union. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words to the churches. We thank you that this is a word for us tonight. Father, I pray that you would help us to not be a church that settles to be second class. Help us not just to plod along and not work hard on the things we can improve. Father, I pray that tonight we'll be both encouraged and challenged. We would be able to be encouraged by the things that we are doing well. We'll also be challenged to keep being the church that you want us to be. Father, we pray that you'll work in us and through us, that you'll grow us. And Father, I pray that in all things we would cling to Jesus that we would love his death for us and that we would long for that day when we can be with him for eternity.
Let's pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.